0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Oh, Folks, if you would please uh, uh, turn your Bibles... You open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And as you do, I have just one closing notation from the end of chapter 2 that may interest you, especially if you were here this last Sunday. When Solomon ends chapter 2 in verse 26 by saying, This too is vanity and striving after the wind. He's not pointing that statement at the good man who, uh, through knowledge and wisdom and understanding, labors with enjoyment. That's not what that statement is pointed at. Solomon is rather indicating that vain life of the sinner to whom God has delegated the task of gathering and collecting To give to the one who God views as good. That unbeliever remains alienated from God, uh, so it's immaterial how much he accumulates in this lifetime. Uh, God providentially uses him as a divine instrument to bless his people. Um, That unbeliever remains isolated from God, who is the source of all joy, we learned last week. So without God, no matter how much he achieves or earns, uh, his life is vanity and striving after the wind. So if there remained any questions, any hanging chads out there from last week, I hope that that will answer it. This is some really great material. Really wonderful material. Chapter 2 closes, showing God is all-powerful. He's sovereign to redistribute the wealth of the sinner to his saint. Not a whole lot different than Egypt when when God allowed the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians. Uh, God will take care of those whom he loves. You know, I'm glad that the Bible doesn't portray us as uh, uh, just in, in this life alone, merely reliant on time, space, and chance to fill our needs. How, vanit, how, how vain would that be for just relying on time, space, and and chance. Solomon also closes chapter 2 reinforcing the understanding that God has a divine concern for his elect. And Solomon portrays work as good. It's enjoyable. And our labor serves as that divine conduit through which God blesses his redeemed people. I don't know about you, but I want in on that. I want in on this, and since praising God's benevolent hand is Solomon's recent tone at the close of chapter 2, his latest demeanor, I embrace verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3 with much optimism. I look at it very optimistically as they give a summary to the course of our lives. A summary to the course of our lives, folks. There is surely a time for everything. A time for everything. The broad impression we hold of our lives—it should be very good. Should be good. Solomon's conclusion at the end of this poem—it's a poem from verses two to eight—and at the end of this poem, in verse eleven. Solomon says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. My translation says that God makes everything appropriate in its time. You may have a translation that that says that God makes everything proper in its time. Those are true. But the Hebrew term is literally beautiful. Literally beautiful. It is the same term that is used of the love of Jacob's life named Rachel, to whom Scripture says in Genesis 19, verse 17, it says about her, she was beautiful in form and appearance. Just a beautiful thing. So at the end of verse 7, or actually at the end of a 7-verse poem, Solomon concludes this, God has made everything proper and appropriate and beautiful in its time. If you are reconciled to God through faith, we know today the object of our faith is Christ Jesus. This poem is about you, folks. This poem is about you. Uh, It is a condensed summary of life. And life is beautiful. It's very beautiful. And and you might say, you know, it, it, it doesn't look that beautiful from where I'm sitting right now. It just doesn't look today. That beautiful this morning. Yet if you could remove yourself from your immediate crisis in such a situation. Just remove yourself from that moment in time. You will see God has woven your life into a beautiful tapestry of events. Shaping you. Each of these preordained events. Perfectly timed to shape you into you. It is a work that he is doing in us, and a beautiful work it is. The poem, verses two to eight, it's it's an am- astonishing work of literature. It's possibly possibly the most recognized passage in all of the Bible around the world. And it is distinct by how it is divided into fractions of seven. You may be aware, aware in the Bible that the number seven symbolizes. A perfect completion, perfection and completeness. Uh, That that was first established during the creation work, when God rested on the seventh day when he completed all of his work. Uh, The number seven is is symbolic of completeness. Uh, I can't go into that today and and showing you that. If you have questions, email me, um, or I even have a couple handouts here afterwards. I just don't have time to go there today and show you why that is. But these multiples of seven, they symbolize complete perfection. There are 28 occurrences of the word time in this poem. There are 14 lines that offer contrasts in time. There are seven stanzas containing seven couplets of lines which amplify each other as uh, Hebrew poetry normally will. And, and the poem begins by saying this. This is the title line, folks. There is a time to be born and a time to die. You, you could reckon that as, as the title line in the opening of this passage. It's a time to give birth. It's a time to be born. And this title establishes that from birth until death, these seven poetic stanzas, supply a comprehensive sketch of the complete human life. The contrasting events that we'll see, they they amplify the rich diversity, the endless complexity of our human experience. It's never ending in complexity. And God has played every one of these, uh, these occasions as a beautiful note in life. God has played them each perfect in its time and and occurring precisely as God has prescribed. Each event in life is clearly to be recognized as an appointed time, uh, sovereignly ordained by God. Uh, Some are very precise times, being born and dying, for instance, while others appear as seasons through life. There are seasons of sorrow and grief. There are seasons of laughter and joy but for each of us as our clock ticks the times change times always change so as i read the passage beginning in verse 1 uh, you can know this like sands through the gla- uh, through the hourglass <laughs> these are the days of our lives yeah i came up with that My mom used to watch Days of Our Lives. (laughs) In verse 1 of chapter 3, the complete life, it says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. I tried to read this in every English version that I could find. And you'll probably notice, I hope I'm not mistaken, uh, for each and every one of you in your Bibles, you'll see that these verses are arranged as poetic, poetic stanzas, This is a poem. It's arranged uh, poetically. And and it is a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece amplifying God's providence over all life events. God is in control. And since the timing of each event is appointed, there must be a higher power who ordained it. And verse 11 reassures us that that higher power is is God. And this poem's comprehensive list of, a, of contrasting and opposing events is designed to assure that God is sovereign and in control over the timing of every single event and every season of your life. Well, this is going to stretch us today, isn't it? To know God, to learn to know Him, to Try to fathom the greatness and the power of God, the sovereign creator. Folks, there is no place in Christianity for a God who is disinterested or uninvolved in his creation. Islam's view of God is that Allah Allah was a clockwinder, a good clockwinder. Allah set creation in motion but he does not interact with his creation. He, he, he's simply letting the time run out. In Islam, Allah is distant, he is impersonal, impersonal, and he is unknowable. There's no personal relationship with God, and therefore Islam does not offer a reconciliation between man and God. You know, relationship, it, it just isn't an important element in that form of theology of Islam. By contrast, what a great song choice today, Doug. By contrast, Yahweh is the God of Israel. His name means, I am who I am. That's his name in Hebrew, the great Yahweh. And he is knowable, folks. He wants to be known. The Lord walked in the garden with Adam and Eve during the cool of the day. Originally, man enjoyed direct, unhindered relationship with Yahweh. the whole, Fellowship with a holy and sinless God. That was man's original state. Sin, however, severed that relationship. A decision to sin cut off direct, unhindered fellowship with the holy God. Yet God so loves this world that he remains intimate with his creation through achieving a work of reconciliation with man. It is God who achieves the work of reconciliation to us. Yahweh is described in Scripture as both transcending, means sovereign over all of creation, And he is condescending, meaning he condescends into his creation to remain intimate with man. He wants to maintain that relationship. God walked with man. Man severed that relationship. God the Father came searching for the lost man or woman, and he achieves redemption. What a wonderful picture. God comes searching. Reminds you of of the prodigal son. Therefore, when the fullness of time came, God sent his sinless son, Jesus, to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin in human flesh. And when that divine word became flesh, God once again dwelt among us. As Jesus walked the earth, God dwelt and walked with man Again, for in Christ Jesus, Colossians 2.9 says, All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Christ is God's holy son, and he wants relationship. God is seeking relationship. So God the Father, he remains intimately involved with his creation, and very much in sovereign control over creation. All human events. By the way, what a picture. We talked last week about the harmony between the Old Testament and the New. And looking at the opening of the Old Testament and how God is walking with Adam in the garden. He's seen walking, walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. Then look to the New Testament and the opening of the New Testament. What's God doing again? He's walking again in the person of Jesus Christ with his creation. What harmony there is between the Old Testament and the New. God is so much in control that at the perfect time His Son was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God to be nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But on the third day, God raised him up again. That is Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And in Acts 4, verse 27, all of Christ's disciples prayed in unison to God the Father, saying this, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur so what this illustrates is that true biblical Christianity it doesn't believe that history records an arbitrary domino of random events that just, that just kind of in the end came together somehow just kind of all fell together that's not what Christianity believes All of human history from beginning to end, from the garden until the return of Jesus Christ, it's orchestrated. God's playing an orchestra. And each event has a divine purpose and appointed time. This includes the day of your birth, the moment of your death, and everything in between. Solomon heard his own dad, who was King David, declare this in the psalm we read earlier today. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's Psalm 139, verse 16. God did not simply record our days through foreknowledge. David assures every one of our days are ordained by God. In job uh, Job 14 verse one, the prophet Job said this: "Man who is born of woman, his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, speaking of God, and his limits, you, God, have set so that he cannot pass. The day of your birth, the day of your death, are set." So, since our seasons and our days are all ordained, we know that God is in complete control. We need not fear life and we need not fear death because Yahweh is in control. Folks, I am not afraid to die. I'm a little concerned about how I might die, right? But I'm not afraid to die. God holds me in His hand. In the course of our lives, it's not random, it's not arbitrary, it's not accidental. Just as the precise day for Christ's birth and His death were ordained, so are yours and so are mine. All ordained. I'm not saying that I fully understand it. But scripture assures that you can hang your hat on it. You can trust it, because that's what Scripture teaches us. Uh, because if we're honest, if we're really honest... Boy, I'm dry. There must have been a lot of work going on yesterday. That was a great day. Thank you to everyone who, who was part of that and all the work that God done. looks, looks wonderful. But if we are entirely honest... There are only two options, folks. Try to hang with me here. Really hang with me close for the next few minutes. God is in sovereign control over everything. Or, He is powerless to control anything. Let me explain. If God can intervene to prevent your car from accidentally skidding off a cliff... One time, which we always, after a close call, we always say, praise God. Thank you, Lord. Right? We always give him credit, right? And if God can prevent a car from skidding off a cliff one time, then God can always do it. If God can miraculously cure cancer one time, and we all know Jesus healed every type of disease, even raised the dead... You must believe these things to be a Christian. If God can cure one time, then God has the power and the potential to do it every time. There's only one alternative, and that is God can never do it. It's only logical. We have to be intellectually honest, folks. This is tough stuff, but we have to be intellectually honest in the in the consideration of who God is you know many would like a God who is in control when when we want him to be who does that put in control right puts us in control that's what we really want to be yet if God can control one human event in history he has the power to control them all So either God is sovereign and always in control or He is not and there is no in-between. There's no in-between. This is going to bend your minds. Think about this. This is going to bend your minds, a bent mind. If a situation arises that results in your death, some accident, and God has power To intervene and stop it. Yet God decides to not intervene. And you pass away. Since he had the power to stop it. Is God not still sovereign over the timing of your death? Oh oh, yeah he is. Because he could have stopped it. Think about Hezekiah. King Hezekiah. That's second... Kings 20, and God informs him through the prophet Isaiah, he's going to die. Hezekiah weeps. He cries. He prays. Through the whole process, God grants him a general amount of time, a non-specific, you know, period through which Hezekiah might continue to live. No, very specific, 15 more years. God makes the call. All days are ordained. God didn't just muster up enough battery power to control Hezekiah's days. And now he's just worn out and tired and can't do it anymore. God determines everyone's days. This is essential to the true nature of God. He is in control. We are not. The Bible assures God has complete control of every life event Either by intervening or deciding to not intervene. God is in control both ways. For if God were not sovereign, if God is not in control and sovereign, it would make the book that we read a lie. If God really can't do this. There exists no alternative Alternate interpretation of Scripture, where God is not fully in control. There's no alternate to it. So for those who would reject, and many do, God as sovereign, you know, rather than, because the Bible describes God as sovereign, but if you must reject God as sovereign, I would have to ask, why not just quit propagating a false, God, uh, false view of God? Because it's not what the Bible says. He, the Bible says he's sovereign. Why not just better live as an agnostic? And say, you know what? Nobody can know. You can read the Bible. It says he's sovereign. He says that he gives life. He knows, uh, knows everything about you. He ordains the days of your life. And he can heal and he can save life. And, well, wait, we're going to see later. He can even take life. Why not just say that ah, no one can know? It's because we know. We know we must quit distorting biblical Christianity. Well, I'd love to go straight into God's sovereign control over the human heart. We don't have time. But it is the same. God turns the king's heart wherever he wishes. He convicts of sin. He opens heart to respond to the gospel. He hardens heart as with Pharaoh. He softens heart as with Artaxerxes. God the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart. There's no such thing, folks. There's no such thing as man's sovereignty, which would mean free will. There's no such thing as man's sovereignty. That idea is completely absent from the Bible. It's not in there. Man is not sovereign. Here's kind of the linchpin to all of this. You guys know what a linchpin is, right? Right? On the old covered wagons, here's one illustration. The old covered wagons that used to go across uh, the west. When you put on the wheels, you slide them on so they will turn. The linchpin is the pin that went down afterwards that held the wheels on. All right. So here's the linchpin because I don't want the wheels to come off of this. If God were powerless to intervene and unable to save us from sin, pestilence, peril, or death, why would we pray to a God if He can't do anything? We pray because He can. He has the power to do whatever He wishes. Because God is omnipotent. Have you heard that word before? Omnipotent. Omnipotence is one of the essential attributes of God. Omnipotent means all-powerful creator of the universe. Nothing is impossible with God. And with, all, with God, all things are possible. Not some things, not partial things, not some things now and then. All things, Scripture assures. Nothing is beyond God's power. Nothing. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Over all? How much is all? It's quite a lot. I just find this amazing. The God whom we worship is powerful. He loves us. He wants relationship with us, and he reigns in the heavens. Folks, it's challenging for our finite little minds. It is tough to understand and fathom. Yet through all human events, God either intervenes or declines to intervene to shape Christians into the image of Christ. This is God's will for your life if you are a Christian today. This is God's will for your life to conform you to the image of Christ. Romans 8, verse 28. Think in the context now with this, what we've learned so far. Because we always quote Romans eight twenty-eight. Everybody knows that one by heart. Listen to this, though. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. And those who are called according to His purpose. "...for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be," speaking of Christ, "...the firstborn of many brethren. And these whom He predestined, God also called, and those, these whom He called, He also justified, and these whom He justified, God also glorified. What shall we say then to these things?" If God is for us, well, then who can be against us, right? He's all powerful, and He's making it happen. He's in uh, in this work through the indwelling Holy Spirit as well. I got a l- good little explanation here from for foreknowledge. It comes from a professor at Dallas Seminary. Gerald and I had the same professor. Gerald got Gerald got this illustration. What's that? Copyrighted, Nathan Holstein, Professor at Dallas Seminary, and Gerald. The common explanation for foreknowledge, and you've probably heard this, still fails to provide for freedom of choice. Meaning, alternate scenarios where something else could have happened. If it is only our choice that God foresees from eternity past, and He looks forward and He only sees our choice... And then because of our choice, predestines. You've heard that argument, right? If that is the case, God sees from thousands of years ago our choice and therefore predestines, then we still have no freedom to alter our choice or God would be wrong. Think about that. Think about that. It doesn't solve the problem inherent in free will. For if God sees that Russell's going to marry Stacy on a certain date ahead of time, Russell can't do anything else. There's no free will in that scenario. It doesn't add up. That dog won't hunt, we used to say in Texas. You can't do any alternative. It doesn't solve the problem that man wants to be sovereign. But only God is completely free And only God is sovereign, and man is not. Man is not. Romans says that God causes all things to work together for good. If we can just better grasp how God orchestrates life, He's shaping us and those around us, through all of life's events, both during blessing and calamity, He's working in us, Then we will worship God in spirit and truth. And John chapter 4 assures us, God desires worshipers like these. Ones who worship both in spirit and in truth. And since all of life's events, both joy and sorrow, are ordained by God to conform us to Christ, the man of many sorrows, by the way. Christ was the man of many sorrows from Isaiah. Why do you think we'd get out of this life unscathed if we're supposed to be conformed into his image? We're going to have some sorrows too. But if both joy and sorrow are ordained by God to conform us to Christ, then truly all of life is good. All of it is good. A gift from above. And all things in our life were together for good. It's amazing. Everything that has shaped us through our entire lives. Your life, it is orchestrated by him to be precious. It, it's slightly humorous. But normally man wants to view himself as sovereign and God as the puppet that we control. You know, he's just always kind of standing by uh, at attention, uh, waiting to bless us when we ask, right? No, no. In actuality, God is the one holding all the strings of life. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He's loving. He's a redeemer. Proper view of God's nature, his essence. It's essential to Christian theology so that we can worship with the lights on. We want to worship with the lights on. We want to know who we are worshiping. Looking briefly at this poem about life, There are seven stanzas. There are two lines per stanza in which the second line will add clarity to the first. That's generally how Hebrew, Hebrew poetry works. Typical poetry employs rhythm and rhyme. Things sound alike, right? And the tempo is the same. Hebrew poetry employs parallel thought. Two lines of parallel thought. And for this reason, Old Testament poetry... It can be translated into any, any language on the planet without losing its meaning. It doesn't have to rhyme. It's all in meaning. And since there are only seven stanzas in seven verses, there aren't 28 sermons in this poem. All right, So we'll get out of here in pretty good time. Actually, this is one sermon about life that contains seven points. It's a seven-point sermon here. And the first point is in verse 2. I won't take a lot of time in these. but We should look at each of the seven points. There is a time to give birth, or a time of birth. Your translation might be a time to be born. There's a time for birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Both lines pertain to the beginning and end of life. The interesting part is that a farmer doesn't typically uproot what is planted, does he? Not typically. A farmer waits until the plant dies, and then he harvests it. A number of theologians believe that this second line is explaining what God does with each of us in the first line. God providentially plants us into a certain time in human history... And we are to realize that same powerful God may uproot us and pull us out at any time. One commentator says this, To uproot should not be confused with reap or harvest. God may decide to recall a perfectly good life. Or he might recall a perfectly bad one as well. In the Corinthian church, some were guilty of causing division within the local body especially during the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul writes, For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number are dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Paul goes on to explain that these sins that, that led to death were the Lord's discipline. And the overarching principle seems to be that we obviously do not, do not choose our time of birth, nor do we choose our time of death, over which God has a divine prerogative to uproot us at any time that He chooses. That's God's prerogative. We can grieve. We will have sorrow when we lose loved ones. There will be much pain. But we should never be angry with God when somebody dies. It's God's prerogative. In verse 3, A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. These two lines may have to do with executing justice. In Genesis 4.14, Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, he says to God, Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. The term kill, you see it repeatedly in Scripture. Usually there's a cause to this word kill. Um, It possesses an idea of a final act of justice, which killing would be, right? That would be be the final act. And this, this verse contrasts that to a restoration, a healing. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. Heal. And this sense may also be present in the second line with the tearing down, which means to destroy with finality, and a building up, which means to restore what is already existing and make it better. It may also play off verse 1, as within our lifespan between birth and death, we will observe occasions that terminate and seasons to remediate. Follow me? We'll, we'll observe that through our lives. Seasons to terminate, uh, that will be terminated, and others that will be, need remediation. God told Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So God there does not sanction vigilanteism, but within the sphere of human government, the Bible prescribes swift capital punishment. That's what the Bible prescribes, for a convicted murderer. But the Bible also prescribes restoration and healing for many other serious offenses. There's a time to kill. There's a time to heal, to restore. That word healing, it's in the Second Chronicles 7.14. Where, where that familiar passage where, where uh, if you'll pray uh, and you'll humble yourself, and repent, and call yourself by my name, then I will heal the land. Same word. A restoration is what the word means. So there's either a final act of justice or a restoration. Remember, folks, this is a broad poetic picture of life. Just a broad broad brush strokes of life. In verse 4, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. I'll quote my old pastor on this, Tom Nelson. Quote, a day will come in God's sovereign plan when you you will receive a phone call telling you your parents are dead. Your time will be to weep. But it won't last forever because there will be a time when you get a big promotion and finally move into your dream home and then you will laugh. Folks, life is not boring and stoic and stagnant day after day after day. We experience... Ups and downs. There's rich complexity in life. In verse 5, there's a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. These two lines likely pertain to the perpetual presence of adversaries in life. Throughout life. To cast stones for the greatest part of human history. To cast stones was a form of weaponry. It was offensive weaponry. To gather stones often had to do with building walls and fortifying defenses. That idea would also be supported by the second line, which adds clarity, a time of embracing versus a time to shun embracing. Prepare for adversaries through all seasons of life. There's a prepare preparation for it. Well, that, that goes from the mean girls in high school. You know, uh, uh, until there's an adversary at your front door. Life is a lot easier, folks, when you can discern people who want to do you harm. There's a time to know. There's a time to act defensively. There's a time to act defensively and to build up your defenses. Friends from frenemies. What I really like about this passage it's not always final folks. It's not always final. There is room for the grace of God. There is also a season to embrace. There's a, time, there's a season to bury the hatchet. And don't do like Arthur Brooks said he had a song and they left the handle sticking out. Right? No you bury the hatchet. There is a time to embrace as well. Verse 6 reflects our possessions and our resolutions concerning the stuff of this life. There's a time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Yard sales coming, there'll be a time to throw away. (laughs) Tom Nelson again writes this, There will be a time that you will be full of hope and will want to search. There will also be a time when you will be hopeless and want to give up. The things you own will be useful for a while and you will want to keep them, but one day you will take your stuff to goodwill or yard sale and it's time to throw it away. Isn't that truth? Sometimes we got to have something, and a year later it's like I don't even want it anymore. So it is with material belongings. You know, there there is there is by the way a great there's great wisdom in recognizing there is a proper time to just write something off as lost just let it go i've got some stories where i should have wrote things off as lost earlier but as forrest says that's that's all i got to say about that <laughs> don't have time today in verse 7 A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. There's a season in life where your agony is going to be so bad. As they often did in Jewish culture, you would want to rent your garments. You would tear your garments in pain. That is often accompanied by a time when there's nothing comforting that others can say. It is a time to remain silent. I don't know what to say. That is, uh, I don't. I'm am a, a. You can say, a, I'm at a loss for words. Good. There are times you should be at a loss for words. Then there will come also a time to ser- sew back the tears, as fabric was, was expensive, uh, back in those days. They would sew up clothes that they had torn. Sew back the tears because that person's sorrow has now passed. And to him or her, once again, you will be able to speak freely with them. That's God's wisdom. Know when to be silent and know when to speak. Then finally, in verse 8, there's a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. Folks, there are many evil forces in the world. There is a time to go to war. December 7th, 1941, there is a time to deal with evil. And God is sovereign over war as well. Can a Christian serve and give his or her life in battle to protect fellow Americans? Oh yes, yes. But praise God, we are not always at war. And there is a time to hate what God hates and a time for peace. Folks, these are the days of our lives. I think I I identified 25 out of 28 of these already having described and pertained to me. In fact, there's probably only one left. I won't name what that one is. And Don't imagine I'll be in a situation to have to kill at my age or go to war. There's no way to know for sure, but there's one left that I still have to do. Unless, God, unless Christ comes first. Then I'll wiggle out of that one. <laughs> do you want to know what is most, and I'll close in this, what is most encouraging, I find so encouraging about this poem, the reassurance in this poem? Here it is. If you are in a season of pain right now, it isn't going to last forever. If you are at war, that war is going to end. Imagine if there were only time for war. But no peace in between. If God is sovereign and good, which he is, life is not always war. It is not always mourning. It is not always tearing apart. And it's not always losing. Praise God. It's a diverse life we live And as I said at the very beginning, I'm very optimistic in this poem. Life is rich in diversity and complexity. Seasons change, and so have I. And you need not wonder why. Christ lives in me. He has changed my heart, and I have seen Christ as Savior. I pray everyone in here has done that. Because He is shaping us into an image of His Son, he wants to bestow His love on us. As Galatians 2.20 says, It is not, no longer I who live, but it is Christ in me. Again, God is sovereign. He lives through us in the Holy Spirit. Um, this too is the goodness of God. God is so good. He has made everything in our lives beautiful in its time. God's sovereignty does not remove man's responsibility. We are moral agents who sin, and we will be accountable to God for that sin. Sovereignty doesn't suggest we are robots or fatalists or that behavior doesn't matter. That's why we need a Savior to save us from our sins. Sovereignty means that God has both the power and the authority to intervene or to decline intervening whenever He wants while conforming us to the image of His Son. God is in control. Closing quote from Philip Riken, president of Wheaton, uh, Wheaton College. He writes that, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Far from being a fatalist, the preacher, meaning Solomon, has come to a proper appreciation of the sovereignty of God over time and eternity. Life is not uniformly bad, but includes both positive and negative experiences. From this beautifully balanced poem, says Riken, we learn many important truths about God, about His Son, and about our own stewardship of time, which may be our most precious possession. The time that God gives us. Life is good. Life is good. I, I love this book. Life is abundantly rich, and it includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's not all good, and it's not all bad, and it's not all ugly. Life in His amazing gift. Praise God. Let's pray to Him. Heavenly Father, if we could only comprehend the power of Your greatness the wonders of your hand that work all around us, through us, near us. Lord, you come into our lives by your Spirit and through faith in Jesus Christ. You guide us. You shape us. You conform us to the image of your beloved Son. And Lord, in between, sometimes you got to step in and swat us. Oh Lord, other times... You let us serve you with joy and peace. Lord, help us to be transformed into that image. Lord, shape us into exactly what you want us to be. And help us as we look at this life and how difficult and challenging the circumstances can be. Help us to remember that life is short. Let's enjoy it. Let's love one another. Let's give our lives to the service of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.